three-way movie gathering. Welcome back to the podcast. This is part two of our uh, discussion of uh, 1964, the year that Dr. Strangelove uh, did not win Best Picture. We also talk about Beckett and many other things related to Stanley Kubrick. We were going to, we were going to talk about the uh, Oscar from the year 1965. The, the ceremony itself was in 1965, but these are movies that were released in 1964. Um, it was the year that My Fair Lady swept. Uh, it was nominated for 12 Oscars and won eight in all the major categories. And the reason I think this was on our mind is because Dr. Stranger Love was uh, on Turner Classic Movies a few days ago. Didn't Michael J. Fox introduce it as one of his favorite movies of all time? Is that where you saw it? Yes, Austin? he or did. did. He was on TCM introducing it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that, that, that put Dr. Strange Love in our minds, and we were thinking, what was going on in 1964? How could they overlook a movie like Dr. Strangelove, that is a acknowledged classic, one of the, maybe the, you know, the top five comedies of all time, and one of the top uh, 10 or 12 movies of all time, maybe, for some people, and what were they thinking to award um, a nice but very fluffy musical like My Fair Lady, all those Oscars? Mm. Um, yeah, but, so we should mention that um, uh, Dr. Strangelove was nominated for picture, director, actor, and screenplay. And it lost picture to My Fair Lady. It lost actor to Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady. It lost uh, screenplay to Beckett. And it lost director to George Cukor for My Fair Lady. Part of this discussion will be our, our, our admiration and respect for Dr. Strangelove, but also maybe trying to figure out what was going on in, in the minds of the Academy at that time. And is it really that, is it maybe maybe not that hard to understand? Because I think that, that there's explanations for all of those losses and all of those nominations mm, yeah yeah i think so too and i think it it um dr strangelove is is if i if i had to make a knee-jerk pick for my favorite movie ever it would be dr strangelove i mean wow. on any, in, any given day i could choose something else but that's sort of my go-to pick mm. and so obviously you would think that i would be horrified that it lost best picture to a, a fluffy musical but um i think the academy wasn't sitting down to pick the greatest this movie of all time when they were voting they were picking the movie they liked best at that moment in history and i think that dr strangelove was was about 10 years ahead of time um and if you read it, it was very subversive i mean it's basically saying that the people in charge are at best completely stupid and at worst they're insane (laughs) <laughs> and this was 1964, you know, um, Kennedy had just been assassinated. The Beatles were getting popular, but the the world hadn't gone through the dramatic transformations that were to come. And if you read the New York Times review, uh, Bosley Crowther, he kind of liked it. He kind of thought it was funny, but he was horrified at its treatment of authority. Mm. And and mm. I think that's and – I, and I think if you think of the Academy in terms of being mostly a bunch of squares at that time – it's not surprising that they went for the conservative choice. Yeah, I mean, they get props, of course, for nominating it. Um, but That's what we were going to say. Yeah, it's a miracle that they even nominated it, right? We should be so, we should uh, I know, and the, it's, it's fellow, it's nominees were My Fair Lady, Beckett, Mary Poppins, and Zorba the Greek, and here is Dr. Strangelove in the middle of all that. I mean, that's sort of how I see Black Swan this year. It's kind of like this crazy movie in the middle of all this, you know, 
all these sort of fairly not you know they're they're great movies but they're much more conventional mm -hmm. um my favorite scene in dr stage love <laughs> well there's so many of them i can't pick i just can't frame by preference it's one of stanley kubrick's best films uh to me it's right up there with lolita um paths of glory and i also love the shining um and i even love eyes wide shut but um the killing his first movie and i really love the scene in dr strange love where we first meet the george c scott character and and the woman is in the big is in the bra and underwear <laughs> she answers the phone mm -hmm. and she's doing this whole like official phone call you know first she's not even gonna she says should i answer it? and he says of course you've got to answer it honey it's the hotline <laughs> <laughs> and he's sitting on the can. <laughs> he can't come to the phone right now. <laughs> and then later, George C. Scott revisits it when she calls him uh, when he's in the war room. And he's, of course, I, I, I respect you deeply as a woman. <laughs> or whatever he says, you know. It's not just sexual. Oh. I'm glad you brought up George C. Scott because it's, it's for all the attention that Peter Sellers gets and for as great as he is for doing um, all the roles that he does, that to me the movie is, is made by George C. Scott and it's a shame that he didn't get a supporting actor nomination. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things that's brilliant about that movie is that it, it plays everything. It, it doesn't play like the people know they're saying funny things. It's, it's done with a completely straight face. And George C. Scott totally gets that. And he, he pushes it right up to the line mm. where it becomes farce, but he never crosses that line. Right. And um, that's one of the things that makes it brilliant. And I think there, there's that scene, it's renowned among Strangelove fans about the lost scene where they were supposed to end with a big pie fight. And I think it was a brilliant decision to take that out because yeah. a pie fight goes into the in, into the area of farce whereas what makes the movie great is that it, it stays away from that it's restrained absolutely but the, i mean it does it does to me start to go there like toward the end you can tell it's starting to to head that in that direction it's but definitely going in that direction that but George C. Scott uh, was a little bit upset when he saw the final cut of the movie because kubrick kept asking him they take they do 10 or 12 takes and then he kubrick would ask for one really over the top take and he would always choose to include the over the top take in the final edit <laughs> oh no george scott felt irritated and pissed about that because he didn't <laughs> think that that's what the direction he wanted to take the character but it worked and kubrick had the best instinct about that and he, he did he was right to ask for more um i just have to say a word for peter sellers because um first of all i love him in this and i love him in lolita because he he plays these different parts and he's so funny every time he's funny he's funny i it's hard to believe that it's three that it's the same actor playing the three parts that he plays dr strangelove um the uh the president and then <laughs> the the what was the name of the guy the english guy mandrake mandrake <laughs> mandrake you ever see a communist <laughs> um, I just—he's so funny in all three of those. But uh, of course, his—I mean, I, I can't even pick one because his president is funny. You know, of course, I like to talk. Uh, of course, I'm upset about this. <laughs> You—I'm—you're not more upset than I am about this, Dimitri. <laughs> and another aspect of his genius too is the fact that—and this is what—to credit Kubrick—is he gave him free reign to to improvise a lot of those lines that that weren't in the script, and so he deserves credit in both Lolita and Doctor Strangelove for writing a lot of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, he's the best. He's the best. And let's see. Does he? He doesn't have an Oscar, does he? I was just going to check. I was just about to shame the Academy and the Hall of Shame to say that no. Peter Sellers was nominated three times for an Oscar. 
He has not won. He never won. Um, being there, I guess, was the the year that he was supposed to win. Uh-huh. And Dustin Hoffman won for Kramer versus Kramer. Way to go, Academy! <laughs> nice job. No, I'm just kidding. A fine Dustin Hoff- Dustin Hoffman performance, but certainly not his best. No, going and, up against Peter Sellers's best. And look who else he was up against. I should do an Oscar flashback about this because give me a break. Jack Lemmon for China Syndrome was great. Al Pacino for Injustice for All. Roy Scheider for all that jazz, and Peter Sellers for being there. Peter Sellers deserved it way over all those other actors. And not only, I mean, I swear to God, this is the reason that I'm blogging about the Oscars, because there is no way that that people would shut up about it if we were doing this year, and it was Peter Sellers up for an Oscar. You could just, you know, you you could just talk about all of his past work, and then, you know, you get into the whole trap of awarding him for his past work. But I think in Peter Sellers' case, and Martin Scorsese's case, and Al Pacino's case, and Paul Newman's case, it's acceptable, you know, because they need to show that they acknowledge this person. Um, yeah, not everybody knows all the details of the history, and at least if they know anything, they can they know the phrase "Oscar winner Peter Sellers," mm-hmm. which they were, were not able to say. And it reflects they, badly don't on always them. Don't care about the details. Yeah, it just reflects badly on them that they that they didn't acknowledge him and they didn't you know nominate him for some of his finer work. Lolita, he wasn't nominated for that. But you know, I will say though that's that's why I think that in some ways that we can sort of justify My Fair Lady because you look at George Cukor who did a, so many terrific movies in the 1930s and 40s and 50s and he was nominated many times but never won. And finally, after they look back and it's already 1964 and they realize they haven't given George Cukor an Oscar. Yeah. That's and so he, he he directs a movie that is that is very nice movie. It's fine. It's great. People really love it, and it makes a lot of money. And it's professional on every level. It's just a class act. And so they say, okay, this is the year we're going to give George Cukor his Oscar. Yeah, I mean, so it's a trade-off. I don't begrudge it. Best picture, best director. I do begrudge it. Best screenplay, uh, not My Fair Lady, but Beckett winning best screenplay. Over they should have had the smarts to to, to give Doctor Strange Love the win for the writing at least. It should have won there. I think so too. I, I have to. I absolutely agree with you. You know, it. Uh, um, they both won the Writers Guild Award that year because the Writers Guild at that time gave out awards for drama and comedy, and so they were able to split the awards like the Golden Globes does. And so Beckett and Doctor Strangelove both won Writers Guild awards. Hmm. Nineteen sixty-five. I still think the biggest oversight with Strangelove is the performances. Not only Peter Sellers losing, but George C. Scott not getting nominated. Right. More so. More so than. Director, it's like, yeah, Stanley Kubrick is Stanley Kubrick, but I can see them wanting, like Ryan said, wanting to give Cukor the Oscar that year. But um, Rex Harrison over Peter Sellers is crazy. What about Sterling Hayden? He should have been nominated too. He was great. Was he a controversial uh, subject at that point after the whole uh, naming of names and all that kind of stuff? House of Un-American Activities, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look at the treatment that Elia Kazan has gotten. There was no way that Sterling Hayden. But, you know, that's kind of lame of them. I'm sorry, he was great in the part. <laughs> He's he great. was great, but you know, the funny the funny thing about his performance is I don't think he knew he was in a comedy. Uh, maybe maybe he was smart enough and he, it was that good of a performance, but I just have this sense that he, he really didn't know that he was in a movie that was supposed to be funny. Oh, come on. Well, the movie, uh, the movie wasn't supposed to be a comedy. When, when Kubrick first bought the property, uh, there's a book called A Red Alert. It was a straight um, suspense thriller about uh, with the same plot as Dr. Strangelove, only yeah. it was played straight. And they started to adapt the book, and they thought, we're going to have to cut this out, and we're going to cut this out, because the situation is just so absurd when you think about the 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 point that, that the, 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 the world is on at right now when when we're – 
could destroy the entire planet with with the push of a button. We have to start taking some of these things out because, for instance, there's a line in in the book, and this is like I said, a straight thriller. The president says to he says, "Mr. Ambassador, I I'm going to give you the straight poop." We have a general here who's gone a little bit haywire. <laughs> Just a little. We have a general who's head. gone a little bit haywire. I'm going to give you the straight poop. And this is a straight thriller, you know? And so Kubrick was thinking, we've got to cut that out. Our audience is going to laugh. But then he's thinking, why not let the audience laugh at this? Because it's so absurd. And so let's go, let's turn it into a satire. Oh, that is so genius. Hey, you did the same thing with Lolita. Lolita, the book is not a satire, but but Stanley Kubrick made it into one of the funniest movies. Absolutely, yeah. And and at first, when they first brought bought that property from uh, Nabokov, Nabokov was really only interested in the money at the time. Mm. He he just wanted to sell the, the rights, and he didn't want to be involved in the screenplay. In fact, he didn't think they'd ever be able to get it made. And if they did, he didn't want to see it. He couldn't imagine they could they could move, make a movie with an with an underage girl. He said, "I don't care if you get uh, a female dwarf to play the part of Lolita." <laughs> That's, that was Nabokov's <laughs> attitude. But Kubrick talked him into writing the screenplay, and he turned in like this 400-page screenplay that they said you couldn't film it, you couldn't read it, you could barely even lift it. and and But they didn't use it because, like I said, they let Peter Sellers improvise so much of his lines, but they yeah. left Nabokov's name on the credits because they wanted to have that that um, cachet, that, that uh, yeah. uh, cultural... Uh, elitism, so that people would not tear it apart for the subject matter. Right, you know, they needed it. They needed him. And we should say also that Kubrick also got into similar uh, territory when he adapt when he worked on The Shining because Stephen King hated his adaptation because once again he turns it into um, almost satire. You know, it's it's uh, especially Jack Nicholson's performance. But you know, there's a black comedy. Uh, nature to, to to the shining you know Shelley Duvall's character and you know I mean just Kubrick he can't help himself you know that is his 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 way of seeing things but um but the, I, uh, the, I, I just a rare go, author will will appreciate what he does with their with their material though you know yeah but Stephen King didn't apparently he really no, hated um uh he really hated the the adaptation because he thought that he tried to make it too ridiculous and funny which is strange mm-hmm. I'd like to ask Stephen King today what he thinks of it I'm sure he would say he thought it was a great movie um, well, they asked probably, he probably he wouldn't because it's not a Stephen King movie. It's a Stanley Kubrick movie. So Stephen King, being the ego that he is, probably still has no use for it. Yeah, I don't know. I'd like to know. Um, he seems a little more insightful now in his, in his older age. But yeah, um, uh, I would put, if I had to choose a double feature, there are two movies I would choose to watch with Black Swan. And one would be Lolita and the other would be The Red Shoes. But I think Lolita um, has, Lolita and Black Swan have a lot of, similarities i think in some ways twisted and strange but um but i think they would make it would make a really interesting mix to see them together interesting getting back to strange love for a second do you think it's lost some of its juice um now that the cold war is over for people who have grown up um not having the threat of nuclear annihilation if it does, if it has, I believe it's because I think that people need to wake up and realize that the juice is still there because the bombs are still there. The threat is still there. Not only are they, it's probably even worse now than it, than it was before because the, the, the controls have fallen apart. Yeah, I, I felt that when I was watching Jack D. Ripper this time, I thought he was he he was really echoing the Tea Party to me. Like I really felt like mm-hmm. he sounded like a lot of the crazy Republicans right now. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that could be Glenn Beck sitting there, you know, talking about the bodily fluids and you know, yeah. 
It really could, because he talks in those strange kind of biblical uh, extremes. And a lot of people do. That's like the end of the world, you know, this hysteria. And I think that kind of hysteria is what Dr. Strangelove captures so well. And I love that everybody is, you know, everybody is crazy and unreliable and the Russian president. I mean, it's just, it's so, it's such a brilliant film that I don't think that um, people will, because a lot of the people that wouldn't remember the Cold War, you know, aren't going to remember the Cold War. So they're not going to see Dr. Strangelove in that context. They're just going to see a funny movie with, with, um, well, I think even though we do, and we are, we are pretty, the three of us are, and a lot of our listeners, most, a lot of our listeners are going to be aware of the Cold War. I, I think we do need to put ourselves in the mindset of what people in the country were thinking at that time. And Craig touched on this a, a minute ago when we first started, the fact that um, the day the critic screening was meant to be held for Dr. Strangelove was the day Kennedy was assassinated. And the, the script was being written for Dr. Strangelove in October 1962, mm. the same month as the Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh, wow. So they were... So they were writing this right in the middle of when the, when the country was at its very most tense. And I'm not really not sure that very many people were all that ready to start joking about it yet oh, because it was so fresh. They had to delay the premiere of Dr. Strangelove. They were going to release it in December 63, but they waited until January, which was a really terrible time to, to bring a movie out. But they did it anyway out of respect for the president's assassination. And, and because um, – but I think maybe by giving it another year – is it helped it become helped to get nominated? Even Bosley Crowther, who Craig mentioned before, gave it a really scathing review when he first saw it in January. By the end of the year, by December, he had changed his mind about it. He had had time to think about it and and, and see the value in it. Hmm. Yeah, it was still a little too ahead of its time. Still, even even a little bit removed from its original plan, it was still a little ahead of itself in terms of the Oscar. I think we can probably agree. On oh that. yeah, absolutely. I think that we're not we're not laughing enough at the wingnuts in our country right now yeah. that they were doing back then. I mean, Sasha mentioned Glenn Beck. I mean, you could picture him, you know, saying Obama is a Muslim and he's fluoridating ice cream. Children's ice cream, Mandrake. <laughs> Children's ice cream. That's Mandrake. Glenn Beck right there, this conspiracy theory screwball that people pay attention to. And it's like, why aren't we laughing at these people? Yeah, I know. Well, it would be great if someone made a movie, made a movie that satirized that. And But, you know, at the same time, I think a movie that we can compare maybe to Dr. Strangelove that's, that came out this year is uh, Four Lions, about the uh, terrorists in the U.K. But imagine if Four Lions had come out the month after 9-11. Well, I still, I, I haven't seen Four Lions. They're trying to get me the screener. They're they're working so hard, the studio. They keep, did it's you the, get it yet? Did you get it yet? But I, I haven't gotten it yet. But the thing is, is I do think it's still too fresh, the whole terrorist mm-hmm. thing to make fun of. But I don't know. I can't really speak to it because I haven't seen it yet. Craig, you've seen it, right? Yeah, the thing is, it's great. It's funny, but it doesn't carry the same punch as Dr. Strangelove does because it's satirizing the other person, whereas Strange Love is satirizing us right. and our leaders. So it's a much more chilling um, effect than Four Lions does. Four Lions is, is terrific. Everybody should see it. It's hilarious. But it's the funniest it, I, movie of the year, I think, and it's chilling in its own way because you realize near the end of the movie that as funny as it is, it's still pretty terrifying. It's still pretty well, fucked up that, that these people the who are so who are such uh, bunglers could still wreak such destruction. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't. You can be the biggest incompetent on the planet, but if you're strapped with explosives, you can still do an incredible amount of damage. And that's sort of the the chilling conclusion that the movie draws to. And it just mm-hmm. kind of it, it it leaves you horrified, and yet you've been laughing for the last hour and a half. So it might be a good double bill with Doctor Strangelove. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So too, yeah. I think I can't really think of very many movies that even dare to approach the subject like like those these two movies have, um, and with the same sort of um, satiric point of view, you know, as ridiculing people who are directly involved with their well, finger on the button. Is, is it Chris Morris that was the writer director? Am I getting the name right? Uh, I don't. I don't know. Can I just say off the record, you guys, that I'm going to cut it out. When I'm looking at the, I'm sitting here looking at the Doctor Strangelove page. On the mm-hmm. right, it says related news, and one of the stories is Moviegasm podcast requests and Doctor Strangelove awards daily. So isn't that yeah, great? Yeah, great. Yeah, we're right on the the page of the Doctor Strangelove page. That's very on cool. uh, what IMDb. You mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is cool. Yeah. yeah. So. We better make this good then, huh? Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I, I just what you said, Sasha, that uh, it's it's still too soon to be making a, a satirical movie about nine eleven. Mm. Think, imagine then how people felt in nineteen sixty four when we had just barely escaped world annihilation with the with the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we only we just lost our president a month after losing our president. This movie comes out that that even though of course there's no relationship whatsoever between the president in the movie and Kennedy. There is a relationship between familiar people because they say that that uh, Merkin Muffley, President Merkin Muffley, was based to a large extent on Adlai Stevenson, who was very well known at the time as a sort of a um, soft liberal, humanist liberal, right? Hmm. And that, um, yeah, I think it was a, I mean, like a, it's a, it's very impressive. I think that the Academy even nominated it, but it's not very surprising to me that it didn't win because I think that it would have just made too many people. Uncomfortable. Wow. Well, the the academy is the establishment, and this movie was definitely right. anti-establishment. So for the academy yeah. to, like you say, even nominate it was amazing. But to have it win would have been sort yeah. of wrong in a, in a weird kind of way. It would be like an endorsement. Yeah, I, I think they see it that way, and their vote is is sort of like a political endorsement of a of a philosophy, mm-hmm. especially if it's a political statement like that. I think that's why a lot of times they shy away from movies that are overtly political, movies like All the President's Men or, you know, um, or, you know, I just think that they feel like they don't necessarily want to take that stance, you know? Is that why Fair Game isn't getting talked about very much or is it just because people weren't that crazy about it? Oh, yeah. Um, Unfortunately, that movie seems to be I think where they went wrong with Fair Game and I really liked it, you know I did because we saw it together and I think that they went a little bit funny in the head just a little funny (laughs) Um, (laughs) just a little funny Um, they they shouldn't have cast Sean Penn because the thing is is it's like a double dip of liberalism and I think that's a problem for them if they had cast any other actor it might have had more of an impact Um, People would sympathize more with Valerie Plame and Joe Wilson, but it, with Sean Penn there, it's kind of like this is a liberal agenda movie. Yeah, it might as well have been directed by Michael Moore. Exactly. So <laughs> that's unfortunate because I think it's, it is a really good movie, and I think it's great that Valerie Plame and Joe Wilson are working so hard for it. You know, and I can't wait to read their books about the subject because I really did like it, and you liked it too, Craig. I would have no problem with it if it was one of the top ten. But um, I'm I'm quietly. Uh, in- keeping it on my own personal list i i don't see it taking taking hold because i think a lot of it is because of the controversy and i think a lot of people are just not not wanting to revisit that whole subject for better or for worse Mm. um and so that kind of counts against it but you know uh it's it's better than i can think of two or three movies that are considered locks for nominations by some people and i can and and it's definitely better than those yeah 
I think so too. I'm re- well. I don't want to tangent. Well, that we, uh, we, back to 1965 and 64, we can depend on a, on, a, on a small faction of the academy every year that are more forward thinking and more progressive. The young bloods, n- not necessarily young in chronological age, but just young in their attitude and young in, in forward thinking um, perspective. We can depend on those people to nominate one movie out of five that that is way ahead of its time. And now that we have ten slots, maybe even two movies a year that that's, that are ahead of its time, and those are great to look back on, just like we're looking back on Doctor Strangelove now to to remind us that there were people who were pretty cool back then. There were people who were thinking pretty cool, pretty making pretty cool movies, and appreciating the pretty cool movies, mm-hmm. even though we kind of, you know, raise our eyebrows and 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 groan a little bit at the ones that that won. It's understandable why they won. Well, yeah, I think it should be pointed out that the movies that were nominated were actually pretty. They were pretty good choices. I mean, Zorba the Greek is a good movie. My Fair Lady is a good movie. Beckett's a good movie. Mary Poppins, for what it is, is a is a good movie. So it's not like they made horrible choices. It was just in this case there was a piece of genius that people maybe didn't see in the moment when it was being genius, and so it it sticks out. But you know, they they. It, it, they didn't and make I terrible say, choices. And I say, too, that, that um, BAFTA has always had really good taste, and BAFTA really gave uh, Dr. Strangelove more respect than the Oscars did that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it uh, won, for one thing, it won Best Production Design, which uh, Ken Adams' production design of, of The War Room and uh, um, the, um, the cockpit of the B-52 were just incredible milestones, really, in production design. I'm sending you guys a couple of emails right now because I want to illustrate a point, and I'll, I'll include these. I'll put these web these uh, pictures up on the website too, so people can see what we're talking about. But um, Ken Adams, you know, had been the uh, designer for uh, the James Bond movies, and that's where um, Kubrick first saw him and wanted him wanted to bring him in for Strange Love. And you can see in one of these pictures I'm showing you the similarity between Doctor No and the War Room set for Doctor Strange Love. And another thing that I've noticed about that I just occurred to me recently about Dr. Strangelove is um, the War Room set um, seems like it, it draws a lot from from um, a, a house that, and studio that was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright in 1937. Um, and anyway, I just think that, that um, Ken Adams is incredible, and he's one of my heroes in, mm-hmm. in uh, produ- production design history, and I'm really glad that the Baptists... Uh, recognized in that year well i'm looking here at the uh, 1964 on wikipedia to see if there are any like really you know great movies that were not nominated uh that year that weren't one of the five and i'm not seeing a whole lot um unless i'm really being just crazy and missing it i should look at damian bono's book because he has a way of, of pulling them out but um you know there's a sam fuller movie uh but it's not like it's there are any really obvious glaring um, omissions that they that they. Um, I'm sorry. So, can I, let me just say that back to the BAFTA Oscar. Thing, oh, Night of the Iguana for 1965. Sorry, BAFTA awards best British film and best film and 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 a lot of the nominations for Strange Love, which is an American movie made in the UK. Meanwhile, the Oscars not, uh, award all of their Oscars to um, My Fair Lady, which is a, a film ostensibly set in, in the UK, but it's filmed entirely in Hollywood on the Warner Brothers lot. Um, it's kind of a, a disconnect there. The Baptists are nominating the American movie that's set in, that was filmed in, in England, and 
the Oscars are doing the opposite. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Well, they, cause they used I don't know to, if that made any sense. Did that, did that come across? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Totally that, sense. Sorry. They used to, um, I, I'm pretty sure that for the longest time, the BAFTAs were held after the Oscars. And so they didn't have as much, um, direct influence and, or, um, you know, mimicry, <laughs> right. but, um, so they could kind of go their own way, which I think is, is makes them a little more interesting than they are now. But I was going to say that the one movie that I see here, well, there's, there's, um, fail safe also came out the same year. As well, you Doctor know, I was going to mention fail safe because it's so much like, like Dr. Strange, like serious Dr. Strange love. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You guys have seen that, right? I yeah. haven't. <laughs> oh, you need to Sasha. Sydney Lumet directed it, right? Yeah. And like as uh, Craig said, it's the serious version of Dr. Strangelove. I first saw this on TV when I was a kid, late night TV, and it scared the shit out of me. Really? Wow. It's really devastating. It's, it's Dr. Strangelove without the humor. Oh, it's interesting. Done, uh, Henry Fonda plays the president and it's the same situation, only it's not a happy ending. Wow. And in fact, it's a good um, and powerful film, but it stops short of being brilliant because it's not a satire. That's what makes right. Strange. Oh so yeah, great. I mean, there's there's, can't, there's no comparison in in the, in the uh, level of quality, but I mean, there's a great similarity in the plot and and the approach. And in fact, they were being made at the same time, and they were Columbia was afraid that Failsafe would steal the thunder for Doctor Strangelove, and so they picked up distribution rights and held on to it. They put it on the shelf for a year. Oh. And held on to it and didn't release it until like ten months after Doctor Strangelove came out. That's so interesting. Okay, so here's okay. Some, here are some of the other movies that were nominated. I mean, that were not nominated. So Marnie, Hitchcock's Marnie, Night of the Iguana, directed by John Huston with Richard Burton, and Sam Fuller's The Naked Kiss. Those are the three that I could find that were, and and A Hard Day's Night. I don't know if you. If that no, would that's be. really. Uh, I think people looking back on that now really respect that movie a lot. Mm-hmm. Richard Lester, right? Hard Day's Night was nominated for something. I can't remember what it was, though. Since you mentioned Richard Which Burton, I'm going awesome to use this podcast m- material. I will say, since we uh, have mentioned Richard Burton, that I'm going to use this opportunity to talk about Beckett for just a minute. Okay. Uh, it was nominated for 12 Oscars, too. And it only won one for screenplay. And it, I think it's a, really a much better... It stood up to the test of time much better than My Fair Lady has. It's a much more uh, serious and uh, uh, important movie, I think. Beckett was out of circulation for a long time. Martin Scorsese rescued it. It was about to fall apart in the in the in the vault. Mm. It had it had been uh, the the rights were holding up distribution on DVD, and so they just let it fall apart. Um, and he saved it, and it's been released now on DVD and and Blu-ray. If anybody wants to check it out, I think it also is going to be on TCM on Monday. If someone anybody wants to watch it. No, I started. I started watching it last night, but it was too late by the time I started, so I couldn't. I couldn't stick with it. But it's streaming on Netflix, so if anybody oh, has Netflix, they can watch it there too. Okay. I was out. They built models. They were ready to build it, and like uh, the week that they were ready to start construction, Kubrick comes by and he says, "You know, I've been thinking if we have all these different levels, I'm gonna have to put people up there, and I don't know <laughs> what I'm gonna have them doing. It's gonna be expensive, so let's just drop all that oh, and no. just make it all one level and just have big screens or something like that." And so Ken Adam threw all that out, all that work out, and he he came up with the with the plan that they went with in like one day, oh off my the top God. of his head, like one day because he was he was pressed for time, you know. And he and so, didn't Kubrick have a lot of problems anyway with bud- keeping budgets down and stuff. Yeah. He did, yeah, for sure. And he he also had uh, great ambitions that he would have to uh, adjust to the reality of the situation because he he liked to be independent. And in order to keep his independence, he he uh, he needed to bring things in under budget. That's another thing about Strangelove we we might have mentioned is that it was really one of the very first independent. 
pictures to go all the way to best picture. You know, it was outside the studio system. No kidding. I didn't know that. He had a lot of freedom after making Lolita, but nobody really wanted to touch this subject. You know, that's why he went to the UK to film it. Mm. He first, he'd had really good experience filming uh, Lolita in the UK and such bad experience with Spartacus. He just didn't want to, he didn't want to be involved with the studios anymore. Right. Right. Sasha was talking before about the, um, about Kubrick and his adaptations and how he makes them more Kubrick than, than what they originally were. Mm. It's interesting that the, the one adaptation that he was the most true with is Barry Lyndon, which I think is one of his best, but is not, is not as, as hyped as any of his other ones. Hmm. I love he, that movie was, too. He was the most true to the source material, and yet people don't seem to haven't seemed to warm up, up to it. It's just interesting that um, of all of Kubrick's adaptations, he was the most true to the source material. I think with Barry Lyndon, which is one of my all-time favorite Kubrick films, but it's not it's not the one that comes to people's uh, comes to people's minds usually when they're talking about the great Kubrick films. Mm. Well, you know, it's funny, Sasha mentioned her favorite Kubrick films earlier, and you mentioned like five of them, and and, and 2001 and Barry Lyndon were like the only two you didn't mention. I know you love, you love those, I know you have a lot of respect for those movies too, so what it amounts to is really we love all of Kubrick's movies. Yeah. There's really not any that we don't like. Well, I forgot That's, to mention, of course, A Clockwork Orange, which is one Clockwork of Clockwork Orange best. too, and, uh, and uh, The Killing. The Killing the was killing. Sterling Hayden that he made before yeah. Lolita. That's a great movie. But I agree with Greg about Barry Lyndon. I've been putting off watching it. Again, because I know it's coming out on Blu-ray next next year, and it's going to just look incredible on Blu-ray because of all that natural lighting with the candles and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, back to Ken Adams, if I can, for just a minute, uh, because <laughs> I just really have so much respect for the guy. Yeah. He he, uh, Kubrick sort of drove him crazy on Doctor Strangelove. In fact, uh, I think Ken Adams said something like the, they got so close that the only way Ken Adams could survive it was on tranquilizers. And so Kubrick approached him to design uh, 2001. A Space Odyssey too, but Ken Adams had had enough of him. He couldn't deal with it anymore. He he declined the invitation. But Kubrick came back to him and asked him to design Barry Lyndon, and it was a totally different experience. Instead of um, constructed sets, Kubrick wanted to go to the locations of the actual manor houses where these places yeah, uh, right, took place in the 18th century and redress them. Mm-hmm. And so it's a totally different look. But like like Craig said, totally authentically, meticulously authentic. Hmm. And I just love that movie so much. Barry Lyndon, incredible. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely it's not one of my favorites, but I, I appreciate it. I really love Paths of Glory. Um, mm-hmm. I already said the ones I love, so I'm just repeating myself now. But <laughs> all right. No, but I mean, Lolita. You know, the, he was on such a roll there with Paths of Glory, and then Lolita and Doctor Strangelove. I think he took a little bit of a stumble with critics with 2001 because it was way, way ahead of its time and and took Mm. a lot of flack from critics because people thought uh, it was so – people were so unused to seeing anything like that and it was so unused to anything he'd ever done before. Yeah. They thought he'd gone off the rails, I think. Really, if you want to be a revered and respected director, you just stay away from the Oscar race because I'm telling you the best films and the best directors have been totally ignored by them, Um, Kubrick being one of them. I mean it's – you know. But really the best, David Lynch. I mean, you know, you. I, I would really love to put that message out there to filmmakers that, you know, the way that you, although I don't know, maybe times have changed. Maybe we don't live in a time where another David Lynch could really be born or, you know, maybe everything's so much a contest now, success or failure, that 
you know, I, I guess Darren Aronofsky is a good example of someone who is sort of making those strides now. And, you know, I would say that the Oscars are still important because I would say that that uh, the four Oscar nominations that Dr. Strangelove did receive, even though it didn't win, gave Kubrick some clout that he wouldn't have had otherwise. And so they were still important to, his, to him, even though he didn't win. I think that even the nominations are more than just an honor. They're very important career-wise. But the strange thing is that, like I said before, even though you've got that one faction in the Academy who you can depend on to 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 nominate the groundbreaking movies that are ahead of their time, you have that other faction who are not looking 20 years ahead, but they're looking 20 years behind. Mm, right. Because right. I'm looking at them like the nominations for, for 1941 right now. And the movies that we haven't heard of, there's one called Blossoms in the Dust, and there's one called One Foot in Heaven. I mean, these sound like titles, Hold Back the Dawn, they sound like titles for silent movies. Mm, They sound so old-fashioned. And there were people, you know that there were people who were 70 or 80 years old in the Academy then who were looking back nostalgically at the 20s and wishing that they still made movies like they used to in the 20s. And that's where those movies come. So that's that's why the, the nominations are important as a snapshot of where... Hollywood was at that time. Yes, absolutely. I, I still some some of the wins though. I just can't get my mind around even now, mm. like Dustin Hoffman winning for. I, you know, I I think he's great in Kramer versus Kramer. I really do. I think he's great in that. I'm a huge fan of his, and you know, um, but it's just it's still hard for me to to imagine that that was an Oscar winning performance. I you know. Um, Rain I know, and, and like you said about Rex Reed in 1965, we just barely glossed over that. I know that because you guys were focusing on Peter Sellers, and I agree that Peter Sellers is an incredible um, uh, historic performance, really. But Beckett with, with Peter O'Toole and Richard Burton at the very top of their careers in a play with that kind of material, they they set the screen on fire for me. I mean, I, that movie means so much to me. I saw that movie when I was in middle school in seventh grade. We had this this professor in our lo- in our t- hometown, my hometown, who somehow had his hands on um, sixteen millimeter prints of Beckett mm-hmm. and Man for All Seasons, and he brought them to our middle school and showed these movies like a, a, a forty five minutes a day, and then he would talk about them before and after the the clips that he would show. And he was a drama teacher. He wasn't a history teacher, but they showed this in my civics class. And I was just, I was entranced. You know, for one thing, Beckett is really homoerotic. There's a really homoerotic uh, gay thing going on between uh, Henry II and Beckett that I couldn't believe they were bringing this to my middle school and showing this in front of the class, you know. <laughs> really? I, couldn't, I couldn't get over it. You know, it. I was barely had a concept of what gay was for myself at the time, but suddenly I was finding out that not only can you be gay and be in a movie, but you can be king of England. And be oh, gay. my goodness. <laughs> that was the lesson I took away from it, you know. So that's why this movie means a lot to me, you know, because yeah. I saw it at such a young age and under those circumstances. It's and funny you mentioned that. I'm sorry. That's okay. I didn't find it until years later that Peter Glenville, the guy who, uh, who directed uh, Beckett, was gay himself. And it's so obvious, you know, looking back. Of course he was. But, well, um, I think deep down all Englishmen are basically gay, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> <I think so. laughs> it's funny that you mentioned the, the gay subtext, though, because in the 10 or 15 minutes that I watched last night, that that was immediately apparent because oh there's that gosh. scene right at the very start where um, Henry gets out, of the bath, get, right? gets out of the bath and uh, Richard Burton's toweling him off and he's like, oh, nobody towels people off like you. <laughs> I know he didn't <laughs> know, say exactly. that, did he? Did he really say that line? 
not exactly like oh, that, okay. but that was he said a line that meant exactly that same thing. But you know what? I, I have the uh, I love this movie so much. I've got the Blu-ray and I've listened to the commentary. And Peter O'Toole does the commentary for this movie, and he's awesome. he's doing it he's doing it with uh, Mark Kermode, who's a film uh, critic and uh, he writes for Sight and Sound. I think he's a professor at Columbia or something. Mm. And so Mark Kermode, Ker, Mark Kermode, uh, asked Peter O'Toole about the gay subtext, and so Peter O'Toole very casually says, "We know." These men loved each other. To put a label on it, gay or straight, it sort of misses the point. But he said, but I'll tell you what. Wow. And he said, he said, I'll tell you what, in, in any locker room for any soccer or rugby or football team around the world, you're going to find a situation where one bloke is going to be willing to give his, his best friend a rub down. Oh, my God. And he said, so to speak. I think he said the way he put it was uh, um, one bloke is going to be rubbing off another one. Oh, my God. He said, so to speak. So he's winking about it. He was very well aware of it, what was going on at the time. Right. Wow. Well, and that whole thing goes back to Roman times. And I think it's weird how the, in the, was it just the 20th century where that idea of masculinity sort of split off to where man, man, love was not acceptable? I think so, because it was such an important part of, of even politics back then that it was a, uh, like like you talk, you know, as far back as Socrates and Plato and Alexander the Great, of course, but then even yeah. later. Um, yeah, the Western society just fucked everything up. I mean, you know, there were everything was fine before that. Prostitution was legal. You know, they, you know, you didn't have to necessarily be faithful to your spouse. I mean, there was just, it, and then you know, anyway. Sorry, go ahead. We should we should remember that when we're celebrating Thanksgiving. It's those assholes with the buckles on their hats that have fucked everything up. <laughs> Thank you for fucking our society for the next three hundred years, assholes. Yeah, yeah really. Um, in the way, you know, and I, I thought about that uh, this week when I was thinking about Beckett again. Buck, Beckett might have been sort of like a Brokeback Mountain of 1964. I was thinking that, <laughs> just that. I was thinking, God, if the Academy had only known that they, that they, they had to have picked movie. up on it. Like Craig said, you can't watch that scene, especially at the beginning and even throughout the movie. You can't watch that movie and not figure out that these two guys are in love with each other. The only women in the movie are like playthings that they toss aside. And they go carousing and and jump into bed with girls, but they jump into bed with them together, right? It's like right. almost like a threesome type situation, right? And um, God, now you make me want to see it. <laughs> well, it's well, not it, that it's not that explicit, you know. But there is all that <laughs> stuff going on, yeah. and and the way Peter uh, Tool talks about it in the commentary, they were very well aware of it at the time because he and Richard Burton, of course, were drinking buddies back then. They were. I was going to I was going to say that was another thing that I thought about was how it kind of paralleled reality. Because it starts mm -hmm. out where they're carousing in the whorehouse and then they ride into the castle on the horse. And you hear all these stories about Burton and O'Toole running around drinking and stuff. Mm -hmm. And you know that there was some, there, there had to be uh, a homosexual activity going on. There just had oh, Yeah, to be. not only that, too, that just the year before, see, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor made Cleopatra. And that's where they met on that movie. And Richard Burton at the time was married, and he dumped his wife and his two kids to go run off with, with Elizabeth Taylor, yeah, which was a worldwide right. scandal because it was the paparazzi were everywhere. And it was like a, uh, a lot of people maybe thought that was really romantic or juicy or interesting gossip, Absolutely. but a lot of people really thought that was awful. They thought it was a terrible thing. And that may have been one of the reasons why Beckett was uh, sort of 
looked down upon because mm. uh, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor, she was a homewrecker, the same way that, that maybe people talk about uh, Angelina Jolie and Brad yeah. Pitt and Aniston and today. You know? Absolutely. What's funny about that is that Richard Burton took a major career hit for that, you know, because his career never really recovered after Elizabeth Taylor. Like, he was never thought of as anything but you know right uh, after the 60s he did continue through the 60s with her and in fact thanks to her i think he did some great work you know yeah but um but they it, forgave one, her they never forgave him i guess that's true that's right one funny thing a story that I, that i know about uh um beckett is that elizabeth taylor used to hang out on the set when they were filming beckett and there's the scene where craig you maybe saw this because it's near the beginning of the movie where um henry the second pulls back the, the blanket of the bed and, and reveals a prostitute that's in bed with him. <laughs> and yeah. and uh, they thought it would be funny to have Elizabeth Taylor jump into the bed and have her strip down nearly naked and, and surprise Richard Burton that way. And maybe they could use it as sort of a publicity thing to put that in a trailer that they would, as a sort of funny trailer, like Hitchcock used to make his amusing trailers and everything. Yeah. But right. Richard Burton went off. He went off and like he was just you know, obscenities you know, spewing from his mouth. He was really furious about it. So they oh couldn't use God. any of the footage. Why but, was yeah. he furious? Why? Because it, he he wasn't ready to joke about that. It was a really sensitive thing, you know. He he his marriage was breaking up over this. His marriage broke up during the during the making of Beckett. Oh, you and mean so it wasn't want, it wasn't kind of out in the public by that point? Or? It was out in the public, but I don't think he was ready to be joking about it because yeah, maybe he maybe he realized that they were thinking about using this as a publicity uh. trick, and he didn't want to be involved with that. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's funny, just two years later, wasn't it 1966 when Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton made Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Right. And you she, know, which was great movie for both of them. And she won her second Oscar for that. She did. She won, but um, he didn't. And he's he great did. in it, you know. And he uh, he never won an Oscar, Richard Burton. After being nominated, what, six or seven times? Yeah, and he was he was considered at the time before he met Elizabeth Taylor, he was really considered kind of an acting force. You know, very oh, absolutely. Yeah, he had a, he he had uh, he was a great theater actor, mm-hmm. and he he had been the year before Beckett. He made Camelot, and this is really popular. But at the same time, he was a Hollywood outsider. You know, he yeah. never was really part of the in crowd in Hollywood, whereas she was. Yeah, it was a great story when he. I, I kind of went down the rabbit hole on Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton a while back. I'm not sure what got me into it, but something got me interested, and I found that um, the first time he saw her, he writes apparently wrote her really insanely beautiful uh, love letters and poems. Maybe that's how I found out about it. And he really, really loved her, like, you know, to almost an unhealthy degree. But, um, I mean, these erotic, you know, really moving love love poems and love letters. And, and, um, and he talks about the first time he saw her, you know, and she mm-hmm. was like, it was the era of, you know, when she was in her prime during like A Place in the Sun, Elizabeth Taylor, you know. Mm-hmm. And he sees her, you know, by the pool in a bathing suit, and he and he couldn't talk to her because he was too afraid, and he because he was such a new um, actor oh, on the yeah. scene. And he sees her, and you know, she to him she embodies everything that is woman, is how he put it. And uh-huh. in that moment, and then he walks away, and then they don't see each other again until Cleopatra. <laughs> Right, because I was going to say I was surprised that you said that, that he knew her back so long ago because I was under the impression that they'd never met until Cleopatra. But you're right, if, if he was afraid to approach her when he first saw her at the yeah. poolside, you know. I mean, I'm pretty but, sure it was right around the time. Yeah, I think of, that sounds right, yeah. Yeah, I'm not um, totally sure. Like, I hope people don't call me out on that. Now, um, for 1966, when Richard Burton lost for that incredible 
role that he had in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, he lost to Paul Schofield in Man for All Seasons, which mm. everything that Beckett did in 1964, Man for All Seasons did in 1966 better. It did it better, and it won seven Oscars for doing it better. Wow. And Paul Schofield won Best Actor. But, you know, one more thing that I know about about Richard Burton that I can maybe pull, draw this and pull it, tie it into this year, in 1969 then, I think was the last time Richard Burton was nominated for Anne of a Thousand Days. Mm. And that's the year that John Wayne won for True Grit. And the story goes that John Wayne showed up in the middle of the night at Richard Burton's house, pounding on the door, bashing the door in, and thrusting his Oscar into Richard Burton's hands, telling him, you deserve this, not me. Mm. Of all the other actors he was nominated with that year, he wanted Richard Burton to know that he thought he deserved the Oscar, especially after being nominated seven times. It really feels like a great injustice was done that he never won an Oscar to me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you look at those movies, when you even even just the movies from that era, um, um, Beckett, A Man for All... um, uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, uh, A Spy Who Came In From the Cold, what else, um, Anne of a Thousand Days, yeah. just incredible. Yeah, he was something... Oh, and he was in Night of Iguana. You mentioned that earlier, Night right. of the Iguana. But he's definitely, he was definitely swallowed up by the Elizabeth Taylor thing. I mean, that just shows you the power of, of uh, that kind of a tabloid love affair, what mm-hmm. it can do, you know. And in a way, he, I think because of that, they, they lost a little bit of respect for him in a way, you know, he became... Yeah, like you said, he never got it back. And but it's funny that even though they were both sort of, I think that they they were pretty much um, resented and reviled maybe in 1964 because here they are, they had just come off Cleopatra, which was pretty much a disaster as a film and financially a disaster for for 20th Century Fox who ever made it. They sunk so much money into it, and it and it um, was a bomb basically, right? And they had the they I think they were the first actors to command a million dollar salaries. And their salaries ended up being more like $3 million because of the overtime that they had to spend on the set and everything. So they were fabulously wealthy, fabulously good-looking, and at the same time, adulterers, you know. Yeah. They were really looked down on in 1964, but then two years later, they come back in 1966 in a movie that shows probably the, one of the worst marriages ever depicted on screen, and that's what they get the respect for, see. Right. Then Hollywood's ready to say, okay, now that you're going to show us your ugly side, well. Yeah, totally. Here, and really ugly side. Like she gained oh. weight, she aged herself oh, yeah. up, you know, to play that part. And she's she's just magnificent. They're they're the two best. And in fact, the original play, um, Martha is older than George. She's the older woman. He's the younger. Is that man. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in the movie, of course, it's Richard Burton. He's older. Swampy. <laughs> 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 that movie was so groundbreaking. I didn't realize, you know, I would read too that that uh, for Doctor Strangelove, they had trouble even passing the censors with a line like "sons of bitches." Mm. And then two years later, in 1966, every second word out of Elizabeth Taylor's mouth is "you son of a bitch" and 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 Jesus <laughs> Christ and goddamn, you know, that's all she ever says. Oh, so great. How did they get away with that? And what you know, I think that the the period of time between 1964 and 1969 is really like. Two decades worth of liberation happened in that five-year yeah, exactly. period. Mm. You see that. You notice that when you watch them, uh, like Mad Men. The Mad Men of the of, of the first and second season, the yeah. morals are so much different than the Mad Men we're seeing now. I know. It's so amazing, isn't it? Mad Men is really changing society, I think, in its own way. Like It, it makes me look differently at advertising now I'm on everything. Yeah. You know, I was telling Craig we were talking about Valentine's Day and how – Valentine's Day. It's such a crock of shit. It is. It's such a crock of shit. I mean, it's not just because we're we're single and we're 
We're depressed and lonely on Valentine's well, and Day. And it was invented by the card company, right? Valentine's Day yeah. was invented and by you, uh, Hallmark. And can't you just see Peggy and Don sitting down and figuring out Valentine's Day, you know? Totally. It's a... And, you know, like in, like I said, in the first season of, of Mad Men, um, divorce is something that was, like, scandalous. Divorce is something you didn't even talk about. And meanwhile, now we're in season four, and everybody is – we're on the verge of the sexual revolution, and everybody's fucking everybody, and it's just fine. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so that's what was happening between 64 and 66 with the Oscars, too. Things yeah. that they were – ooh, they were a little bit too much for them in 1964. Suddenly in 66, they're ready to, to – uh, to reward it a little bit i mean i, I remember oh, yeah. i used to look at um oscar years in terms of what was happening politically i, I went through a phase uh at one point where i was doing that because I, I was really curious about 1968 specifically um but it turned out i think that oliver ended up winning best picture so it was like it didn't really have any impact on the academy um what was happening in 68 which to me seems like a pivotal year you know, I was going to mention this, and I forgot to work it in somehow, but, you know, between 1958 and 1968, of the 10 Best Picture winners in that 10-year period, five of them were musicals. Isn't so that weird. ridiculous? It's Isn't ridiculous. Isn't that insane? To me, it there shows, was, like, head in the sand. I know. There was Gigi. There was My Fair Lady. There was Oliver. There was... Uh, I can't even think of them all because they're all some of them are just awful. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's like... The Sound of Music. The Sound of Music won Best yeah. Picture, you know? It's weird because it's so removed from what was going on and not just removed as in like what people accuse the Academy of now as being removed from the general public sentiment. It reflected the general public sentiment because those movies were so popular. So maybe right. it shows that in a, in a time of strife, people turn toward, you know, comforting, cozy, reassuring fantasies. Another thing, too, the studios were kind of panicking in the, in the early 60s because television was eating their lunch. And they had to try to think of something that they could show on a movie screen that people couldn't see at home on TV. And so they were showing these big Technicolor widescreen musicals with these uh, star-studded casts that, that you couldn't see on TV. Mm. And people were turning up to watch those for a while, but they got tired of them. By the time they started making things in the late 60s like Darling, people were sick of those movies. And they were sinking studios right and left. Studios were having to become – well, they were being bought out. They were being right. bought out by – Paramount was bought out by Gulf Western – MCA Universal, and they all became corporate in the 1960s because they had to. That was the, really the end of the studio era when, when the founders of the studio were making the decisions. Yeah. In the mid 60s, then they became corporations. Yeah. Well, it was great, you guys, and thanks for for um, for hanging out, chatting about the Oscars. Yeah. Have a good day, guys. All right. You too. Bye, everybody. Okay, talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. That concludes our podcast for this week. You can find more at livinginsinema.com and awardsdaily.com. Thanks for listening.